so, so glad that you're here this morning. I hope that you're able to come and to participate with our Bible study hour. We do it every week at 9 o'clock, from 9 o'clock till 10 or 10.15. We get together to study God's Word together. In fact, today was the beginning of a brand new direction within our children's ministry. And I'm pretty excited by it. I think it's an awesome direction that we're taking in fact, so much so that uh, my wife and I, we've committed to be one of the tutors for those children. And so uh, my wife was conveniently absent today, but she had a good excuse. She's taking our kids back to college. So, so for the first week, it was uh, I, she passed it on for me to be able to do. But thankfully, I had some awesome help in there with me and got to spend time with these precious little children. We're talking four to six years old. And I just begin, the more I think about it, the more in love I'm becoming with this whole concept that we're doing. And I'm trying to play the long game with all of this, too. I'm beginning to think, wow, think about the, what this is going to say 12, 15 years from now. To have these kids who are four, five, six years old to grow up through the church and, you know, by the time they're 18, 19, and 20 years old to be graduating off to school, settling down with their life, and then to be able to look back and to think, wow, as a pastor and my wife and I had the opportunity to teach all of these children. I think it's an awesome, awesome thing. And I'm so encouraged and excited about it and I'm enjoying it very much. But I've got to tell you, we have a lot of shortage in that area of people wanting to invest their lives into teaching our children. And so again, I encourage you to give thoughtful, prayerful consideration about stepping in and helping us out on this journey. Today was the first day. You're not that far behind the curve. We're just now getting started. We talked about creation today. Next, we're going to talk about the fall of man. Then we're going to talk about Cain and Abel. Then we're going to talk about the flood. We're, we're teaching them the story of redemption. A little four to six-year-old. They had four of them this morning. And, and just to, to be able to, to listen to them, Micah, Liam, Emily, Luna, these, these precious little kids already being able to recite Genesis 1-1. And learning the books of the Bible. I mean, we're just now beginning, and it's so exciting, it's so engaging, it's fun to be in there. I mean, that time, I, I, I would say it goes by really fast, but today it went by really slow for me because I had all the burden on me. But normally it's going to go by really fast, and it's pretty exciting. And so if you're a part or if you're interested, see Joel. He'll help, help you out, understand what it takes and what it's going to look like. If you just want to come and just sit in and watch it, we would encourage you to do that. Just come and sit and watch and observe and then make decisions from that. Now, without plug being made, I want to invite you now to take your Bibles and let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I need to kind of give you some, some background information if I can. We're going to talk about some, some terms and some concepts in Scripture today, and we'll, we'll do better to understand them if we can really have a full appreciation for what these words mean, especially not just what they mean to us today, but what did these words mean to, to the people at the time of which this letter was written and one of the things that we're going to be talking about is this word adoption. And for us to be able to fully understand adoption in the terms and concepts of the time in which it was written, we need to have a better background for this word. 
And during a lot of reading over this, I come across a, a really interesting article. I want to read a portion of it to you this morning. came through a, a, a Catholic resource, and, and it's called How the Roman Practice of Adoption Sheds Light on What St. Paul Was Talking About. And, and so with that word adoption in your mind, just kind of listen as I read this. It says, there is no process for adoption in ancient Jewish culture. If a man died, his brother automatically became the head of his household. So there's no need for a legal adoption process. The word adoption, during the time and context in which St. Paul spoke, referred to the Roman concept of adoption. In ancient Rome, adoption had a powerful meaning. When a child was born biologically, the parents had the option of disowning the child for a variety of reasons. The relationship, therefore, was not necessarily desired by the parent, nor was it permanent. Not so, however, if a child was adopted. In Rome, adopting a child meant, one, that the child was freely chosen by the parents and that they were desired by the parents. And then two, that the child would be a permanent part of the family. You see, a Roman father had the right to disinherit or even in some cases, kill a child. But a Roman father had absolutely no right to disinherit or to kill an adoptive child. An adopted child received a new identity. Any prior commitments, responsibilities, and debts were erased. New rights and responsibilities were taken on. Also, in ancient Rome, the concept of inheritance was part of life, not something that began at death. So being adopted made someone an heir to their father, joint sharers in all his possessions, and fully united to him. And think about what this means for us as Christians. It is a constant reminder that we are fully desired, fully loved. That we have taken on a new identity through Jesus. That we were created for heaven, but even now are heirs to God and according to Romans 8, chapter 17, we are co-heirs with Christ. So Paul uses this term in order to encourage us that if we are in Christ, then we will remain in Christ no matter what. This morning, we are going to be dealing with the difficult and often controversial issue of the doctrine of election. So before we look at our text in Ephesians chapter 1, I'd like to share with you a small sampling of this doctrine as it is found in the scripture. So I'll begin in Colossians chapter 3 verse number 12. It says, and so those who have been elect of God, chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10 says, For this reason I endure all things in my ministry for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. And in Titus chapter 1, verse number 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God. You find this concept in Acts chapter 13, Verse number 48, where it says, When the Gentiles heard of this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, 
and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 9 says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son. I could give you verse after verse. I just want to kind of give you just a few to kind of help you to see how this is found throughout Scripture. It's not something that's just reserved for, for this particular chapter in God's Word. And so with your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1, follow along as I read verses 3 through 6, or 3 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Now let's go to this term, doctrine of election. The doctrine of election tends to offend us at times, and it particularly tends to offend our sense of fairness. The doctrine of election repulses many because at first glance it seems completely unfair that God would choose to save some but not others. Many people struggle with this concept strictly because for them it just doesn't seem fair. However, I would say that God is never to be measured by human standards and certainly not by a standard of, of fairness that reflects man's fallen nature. As fallen men and women, we do not have a higher standard of fairness than that of the infinite and eternal God. Psalm chapter 97, verse number 2 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Which means that whatever God does proceeds from a base of divine righteousness and divine justice. Isaiah chapter 55, verse number 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Which means as fallen creatures, we are in no position to determine if what God does, if that is just, if it is right, or if it is fair. In fact, I would argue that we step out of bounds when we begin to say things that God is just not fair. Because God is infinitely and perfectly just in Himself. He's just by Himself. He's just for Himself, from Himself, and of Himself. But if justice were our only concern in salvation, then God would send all of us to hell because that's the just punishment of all of our sins. Which means the Creator owes the created absolutely nothing. Not even that which He graciously gives to the chosen. So, so can God's election of certain people to be saved be deemed unjust when they don't deserve salvation in the first place? 
I say to you this morning that salvation is never a matter of justice. Salvation is always a matter of divine grace. Oh, how beautiful is the grace of God. So some questions we need to work through. And I can tell by the looks of many of your faces the questions that we need to really struggle through this morning. I'll give you the first one. The first question we should consider is when did this election occur? Look back at Ephesians 1 verse 3. Again, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then verse 4, you ready? Verse 4 says, just as He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, so just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So when did this choosing occur? Before the foundation of the world. Before we were born. Before anybody was born. Before there was a world, there was a choosing that occurred. All of this occurs prior to Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1. All of this occurs before the foundation of the world. I love that phrase, before the foundation of the world. It's found five different times in the New Testament. And I think it's awesome when you begin to kind of give thought to what was happening or what happened before God spoke this world into existence. So five times we find this phrase. I want to show you all five of them this morning. The first one is found here in Ephesians 1, verse number 3. There's the second one. We can go back to Matthew chapter 25, verse number 34. There it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the, king, the kingdom was prepared before the foundation of the world was established. And then we see in John chapter 17, verse number 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also, this is Jesus speaking, it says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So God loved His Son and gave Him glory before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 starts and says, Knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Talking about Jesus. And then perhaps the most notable reference comes to us from Revelation chapter 13, verse number 8. It says, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb was, who was slain. Before the foundation of the world, everyone whose name had not been written in the book of life. Names were already recorded in the book of life before the foundation of the world. 
which means that God had already made everything necessary for salvation before the fall even occurred. Before the world was even established, God made all things that were necessary for salvation to be. Which means God planned salvation. Jesus Christ purchased salvation. And the Holy Spirit applies salvation. So then question two. The question two is, why are we chosen? I would say that God did not choose us so that we could be His pampered favorites or His spoiled children. No, we were chosen to model Christ-likeness. We were chosen to model the image of God in a lost and fallen world. According to Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 4, God chose us in Christ in order to make us holy and blameless before Him. So Christians are, are to be holy. They, they are holy. They're made holy. That word holy is the same word that we found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 1, for the word saints, hagios. And so Christians are holy, that is, Christians are set apart by God, for God, and to God. And this is the purpose of His electing grace. In addition, the purpose of His election is to make believers not just set apart, but to also to make them blameless, without blemish. This word blameless is found eight times in the New Testament. It's found here in verse number 4. And then you see it again when you get to Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 27. For those of you that are writing down all eight of these, let me give them to you quickly. So Ephesians 1.4, Ephesians 5.27. I'll show a couple of them on the screen. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse number 15 says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish. Both of those words, it's the same word. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We see it again in Colossians chapter 1, verse number 22. There he says, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Two other places that we find this word used. One is found in Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 19. And the other is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 19. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 is what it is. Hebrews 9, 14. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 19. In both of those places, this word is used to describe Jesus Himself. In fact, if you look up those verses, the word is translated as without blemish. So then we also see it again. It appears in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 14. It says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot, blameless, and at peace with Him. And then the eighth place to find this word is found in Revelation chapter 14, verse number 5. So, my point, even though we were totally unworthy of receiving the grace to which He extends, 
God receives us into his family when we accept Jesus Christ by faith. And God's choice for us now is that we should be holy, that is, that we should be set apart for him, and that we should be blameless, that is, without blemish. I submit to you that, that we have taken this concept of Christianity and we've turned it completely into a me thing. We say things like, I get to go to heaven. I get to, to be with Jesus. I get to walk the streets of gold. I get to be united with lost loved ones. I want to tell you that our faith is not about us. It has everything to do about Him. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we might be set apart and that we might be blameless before Him. My question for you this morning is, are you a child of God? And if so, then God chose you in order that He might make you holy and blameless. And I'd encourage you to examine yourself this morning according to that biblical standard. Ask yourself, am I as God intends? Am I becoming more and more blameless in my character and in my conduct? Am I growing in, in Christ-like maturity? Because that's God's purpose. That's His plan for, for those to whom believe in the Son. Let's go to question three. This is the tough one. Because question three is, who did God choose? Or on what basis did God make His choice? I want you to know that God did not choose us because He saw some spark of potential in us. God did not choose us because He looked down the, the corridor of time and, and made the decision on, oh, so that person's going to be receptive, therefore I'll make the choice now to extend salvation to them because I can see all things, I know all things, and I know how they're going to respond and react. That's not how it works. Not at all. In fact, one of these mind-boggling verses occurs in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 9. Verse number 8, he's talking about God. And then verse number 9 says, God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. I'll show you another place in Titus chapter 3. Verse number 5, it says that He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. I mean, He didn't look down in history and say, oh, so that's what you're going to do, therefore this is what I'm going to do. That's not how it works. He says He saved us according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the, by the Holy Spirit. So salvation has everything to do with Him. And having chosen us before the foundation of the world means that you were chosen before you even existed. Before you even had the potential to display a slight hint of goodness, that you were set apart for holiness and you were adopted as God's children. That's verse 4 and verse 5 of Ephesians 1. And this has nothing to do with any merit of ourselves. It has everything to do with the will of God according to 
his will. That is the phrase that is found time and time again. Four times Paul uses that phrase according to his will in this chapter. He uses it in verse number 5, verse number 7, verse 8, and verse 11. According to his will. The emphasis of salvation is placed heavily upon the sovereignty of God. Yet questions remain. Hard, difficult questions. Questions like, does, does God choose some to be saved? Or does God choose all to be saved? What I hear sometimes particularly from ardent Calvinists is that Jesus died for many. He just didn't die for everyone. Their go-to verse is found in Isaiah chapter 53. It's on the screen. Let me, let me go there with you. Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 11. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Then, in the very next verse, verse number 12, it says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Then it says, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And people will say, see, there it is. Many. It's many. It's not everyone. I like to argue that the word many and all are often parallel in the Bible. You might say, well, that's not in English. That's not so. And I would say, well, you're absolutely right. Praise be to God. The Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek and Hebrew. And so watch this. That's what I have on the screen. I, uh, Romans, yeah, Romans chapter 5. Look at what it says. Romans chapter 5, verse number 18. says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. The Parallel is going to continue with the exception that the word all is going to be changed to many. Because in, in verse number 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So my question, do you think that some are sinners and some are not? Oh, no, really, stay with me. Do you think that some people are sinners, but some people are not sinners? Or are some people sinners, or are all people sinners? How literal do you want to take the word many here? Man, what I can't get beyond is John 3.16. It says that God so loved the elect. No. Oh. Oh, it doesn't say the elect. It doesn't say for God so loved the chosen. It doesn't say for God so loved the few. It certainly didn't say for God so loved the white, conservative, Republican, American, Protestant person. It doesn't say that at all. Praise be to God. It says for God so loved the world. 
Then he goes on to say that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whosoever. I mean, who does this not cover? I am convinced that this mystery of divine sovereignty or this doctrine of election and, and, and this mystery of human responsibility or another way to say that free will, those are usually the two sides that people fall on. Doctrine of election or free will. And, and here's the thing. I'm convinced that neither of the debate on pro one or pro the other will ever be solved in this lifetime because both are true, both are essential, both are, are taught in the Bible. Imagine if, if salvation is the train that gets us to heaven, then the doctrine of election and that of free will are the tracks that lay the foundation for salvation to occur. Our problem is we try to get them to intersect, or we try to say it's one or the other. Well, I'm convinced if you ask me the question today, Pastor, which one is it? Is it the doctrine of election or is it the doctrine of free will? My answer to you this morning is yes. It's both and. It's not either or. John chapter 6, verse number 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus also taught in Matthew chapter 22 that in order to be included among the chosen, people must not just be invited, they also have to accept the invitation. So this doctrine of election is, is, is a difficult one. It's a touchy subject to talk about. I've, I've told this to, to some of you in the past, and I'll say it again. The doctrine of election is what I would refer to as dog theology. There's dog theology and there is cat theology. Let me explain. A dog says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you play with me, you love me, therefore, you must be God. The cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you play with me, you love me, therefore, I must be God. You know, that's true, right? I'd argue that there is a cat and a dog inside all of us that are constantly at odds. And both can look and act Christian, but there's a huge difference in their heart attitude. For example, both cats and dogs want obedience in their lives. Dogs want to obey their master, and cats want their masters to obey them. On a personal level, you see this cat or dog theology play out in our prayer lives. Dogs consistently pray for the establishment of the kingdom of God. Not our will, but His will be done. Where cats will pray to establish their own kingdom to pursue their own agenda. Friends, I want you to know that the doctrine of election has everything to do with the grace, love, and sovereignty of God, and it has little, if anything, to do with us individually. 
you will note that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in salvation. What I mean is this. As far as God the Father is concerned, salvation began when He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. But that alone doesn't save us. And as far as God the Son is concerned, salvation was purchased when He died on the cross and He rose from the grave. But that alone doesn't save us. And as far as God the Holy Spirit is concerned, salvation is completed when we yield to His conviction and we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. Which means what began before the foundation of the world and what is fulfilled in present time will continue for all eternity. The beautiful reality is that there is nothing, I repeat, nothing that can separate you from the love of a Father. Once you're in His family, you are forever in His family. And nothing and no one can remove you from the family of God. And therefore, let me end with with this beautiful declaration that's found in Romans chapter 8. It says, What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who was it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of the Father? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the word of encouragement for those that believe, for those that have submitted your life unto Him, is to have the assurance that nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. And the word for all of us is may you submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're going to ask me, well, David, who did God choose? My answer to you is I have absolutely no idea. Therefore, we must preach and proclaim the gospel to all people and all places at all times. And we preach and we proclaim the gospel with the words of our mouth. Stop going back to that mindset that, uh, yeah, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. You've heard that before. It's always necessary to use words. That's like saying, feed the starving people and if necessary, use soup. Like, it doesn't make sense. 
We must be messengers of the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and that we should submit and bow the knees in humbleness and, and, and give our lives unto Him. And this doctrine of election, I'll use terms here that may escape you, I'll explain it, is a post-salvific concept that we should wrestle through. Post-salvific, post-salvation. And a lot of times if we start throwing around election and stuff before people uh, have submitted their lives unto God, it's a stumbling block for, uh, for others because they can't get back past their sense of fairness and their sense of this doesn't seem right. But as a believer, then we should have great confidence in knowing that our salvation has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Him. Therefore, He's the one that can hold it. He's the one that keeps it. He is the one that makes sure that we will fully receive the inheritance that He has promised us. We're going to have hard days. We're going to have hard seasons in life. And, and when those times occur, may you know that you are still part of the family of God. Don't stay on that brokenness. But allow the Holy Spirit to work in you to bring that conviction into your heart and life. To confess your sin, to repent from your sin, and to get back on the right path to which God has called us to walk on. May this church be nothing but a loving church filled with people that love Jesus and love other people enough that we will fully commit and surrender our lives to serve God and to serve other people. And that we'll always look for opportunities to, to share the good news of Jesus. With that being said, church, I have no invitation for you this morning. My invitation for you is to, to know who you are in Christ. I'm going to end this service completely different than the way we usually do it. We usually do a time, music's playing, we call for an invitation. This morning, we're not doing it. Now, make no mistake, I'm right here. Joel and Catherine's here. Terry's here. We're all here. We're all up, hanging out here at the front. We want nothing more to be able to talk with you, to pray with you, to encourage you. But for this morning, I want you to take this message for those of you that believe in Him and that you are in Christ. And I want you to be encouraged by your relationship. I want you to understand that God's called you to be holy and to be blameless. And that's the path that you should be pursuing. And if you need help figuring that out and knowing what that looks like, then come see us. We will help you. We will guide you. We will direct you. But for right now, I want you all to stand with me if you would. Allow me to give this benediction over you. And then as you're dismissed, and if you want to talk, if you need prayer, if you need encouragement, man, would you come and see us? We're in no hurry to leave this place this morning. With that being said, may God bless you. And God go before you to lead you, behind you to protect you, beneath you to sustain you, and beside you to befriend you. Do not be afraid. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will always, always, always be with you. Don't be afraid. Go glorify God and seek to make His glory known. Amen. We'll see you next time, church.